Well, this morning I would like to preach on Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, with the sermon title of The Gospel and Its Results. The Gospel and Its Results. Titus, like Timothy, was an apostolic representative serving under the Apostle Paul. He was a Gentile, a Greek. He was led to faith, it's believed, by the Apostle Paul because of chapter 1, verse 4, it says, uh, where he refers to Titus as mine own son after the common faith. Titus almost certainly would have been among the number of those who went with um, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Later he went to Corinth um, to serve the church there on behalf of the Apostle Paul. And we read in respect of Paul's third missionary journey how he could not find Titus in Troas and left um, for Macedonia and how Titus rejoined Paul in Philippi and gave him a good report of the ministry in Corinth. When Titus returned to Corinth, he hand-delivered the epistle of two Corinthians and organised a collection for the uh, needy saints in Jerusalem. Several years later, Titus and Paul travelled to the island of Crete, where Titus was left behind to straighten out the local churches in Crete. Titus 1.5 For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. This apostolic work was time limited, of course, uh, and uh, Titus was summoned to, to join Paul in uh, Nicopolis when Artemis or Tychicus arrived to replace him. The last mention of Titus we have was when Paul, now in a Roman prison, sends Titus to evangelise Dalmatia, which is Serbia and Montenegro today, in 2 Timothy 4.10. But Paul wrote this, his epistle to Titus during his ministry on the island of Crete. And Titus didn't have an easy job. There was a lot of disobedience. There was a lack of sanctification. And the Apostle Paul, who obviously had missed his um, equalities training and his uh, diversity training, uh, says in chapter 1, verse 12, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. And Paul writes to Titus to give him further um, directions on how to promote order and holy living among the churches in this island of Crete. Chapter 1 of Titus focuses on how Titus should do this in respect of congregational life. 
Well-qualified elders must be appointed in every church. Chapter 2 focuses on family life and individual Christian life. All classes of people in their homes, in their home life, should conduct themselves in a manner that becomes the doctrine of God, their saviour. Chapter 3 focuses on life in public. Believers should be obedient to the authorities and be kind to all men because, after all, it was the kindness of God which brought them salvation. And so our text, then, is in the immediate context of chapter 2, in which Paul gives directions for Christian sanctification in family life and in individual life. He says all types of individuals, aged men, aged women, young women, men servants or slaves, they should all live in a way that in verse 10 they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. All Christians should live in such a way that their life and their behaviour confirm the truth of the doctrines of Christianity. Gives the example of a slave. Thinking of how an outsider would look at this Christian slave. Look how this slave lives and works for his master. How faithful and how respectful he is to his master. But the question that our text deals with, and the question that many might raise, is how should, now why should a Christian live this way? Why should a, a Christian live a holy and sanctified life? And not only why, but how? How is it possible to live this kind of holy life in the home or at work, in the church and in public? Well, that's the theme of our text this morning. We must and we can live a holy, sanctified life because of the gospel and because of its results. For the grace of God, verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearance of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works." And in these verses, Paul sets out the real and true foundation on which his exhortation to Christian holiness is based. He's, he's saying there are four reasons why we should and why we can live this holy, sanctified, 
Christian life. He gives four reasons. The first is because the grace of God has appeared. Verse 11. The second is that the grace of God, this grace of God, teaches us how to live. Verse 12. Thirdly, this grace of God teaches us how to look for the second coming of Christ. Verse 13. And then fourthly, this grace of God has purified us from sin. Verse 14. So we'll take these in order. First, firstly, grace, the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God, verse 11, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Well, that's a great summary of the Christian gospel, isn't it? It is the good news of God's grace to sinners in and through Christ. The Bible teaches two things in respect of this, which when we really understand it should really blow our minds. God's grace, first of all, is not a neutral thing. It's an active, positive, powerful demonstration of his favour. The Bible teaches that, that through the gospel, God manifests his grace. But the Bible also teaches, and it's pretty obvious from the, the way the world is and the way we are, that man is sinful and doesn't deserve favour from God. In fact, deserves the very opposite of favour. That man by nature deserves punishment from God. But the gospel message is that in his grace, God has given for the sake of sinners his greatest gift, the greatest gift he could ever have given, the gift of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace of God, Paul writes, has appeared. The Greek verb used in relation is, used, is related to the noun epiphany. That is appearing or manifestation. With the coming of Christ, as Matthew says when quoting Isaiah, the people which sat in darkness saw great light and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. We'll be thinking about that soon, won't we, when we come to Christmas. It's not that this appearing of the grace of God was the beginning of the grace of God. There was grace in the Old Testament. The same grace in the Old Testament. But with the coming of Christ, there is an epiphany of grace. There's a manifestation of grace. John 1.17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Titus 3 verse 4, The kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared. There's this appearance, this manifestation of grace. In the Old Testament... This grace and truth was present. Of course it was present. And it was promised through types and shadows. 
God spoke at sundry times and in diverse manners unto the fathers by the prophets. The writer to the Hebrews says, the law had a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. You see, but with the coming of Christ, the full light of God's grace and truth is manifested. And in, in that full light, that fuller light, we know now how to interpret the Old Testament. You see, the image, uh, the, 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 the image casts a shadow back. And in the Old, we're looking at the shadow of the image. But the shadow, in a way, points to the image, the reality The veil has been taken away. I don't know if you've ever had to go up into your attic to find something. You know, like a, I, I was looking for an old school report because I was looking for a photo of me playing a, a rugby match. And um, you know, there's, there's some light comes through, isn't there? It's a little shaft of light, maybe through the tiles. I hope it's not too big. Too much light, otherwise you've got a problem. But you can see some things. You can find some things. You sort of can make out the shapes, the shadows, the but 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 it's dim, it's dark, but it's all there. But you put the light on, and you can see, you can see everything. It's there's a manifestation. There's an appearance. It's not that the things weren't there already, but now you can see. That's really what the New Testament is. Well, with Christ, God's favour, God's f- grace is seen. It's manifested. There's an epiphany of grace. God's grace in the gospel is freely offered to those who least deserve it. But notice that this grace... Um, Verse 11, hath appeared, as this, sorry, this grace of God brings salvation. That bringeth salvation. The grace of God brings salvation. That's why we Christians talk of, of being saved. In evangelism, we might say to somebody, have you been saved? Well, that's right. That's good. That's the right language. The grace of God, you see, rescues us. And saves us from the greatest danger of all. The greatest danger man can be in. And you'll be in this position if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your saviour today. The greatest danger is that by nature we are under the wrath and condemnation of a holy God. And if you continue or if anyone continues to live. Their life, and they never turn to Christ for salvation, in the end, you will be cast into the lake of fire, prepared for Satan and his demons at the end of time. On the other hand, the gospel says those who turn to Christ to receive this salvation which grace has brought will receive the greatest possible blessing for body and for soul. Life, light and immortality are given in Christ to all who turn to him. 
free and full forgiveness of sins, past, present and future, is given. We're adopted into his family as sons and daughters. We, God becomes our father and we're given the Holy Spirit and we have a relationship with God where we now call him our father. And we become heirs and co-heirs with Christ and we inherit the riches of our father with his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing, the blessings of the gospel. And this grace of God brings salvation. But it says also something about the extent or the scope of this grace and this salvation. It says, this grace of God bringeth salvation, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. This is a wonderful part of the gospel too. The great news is that grace, gospel grace, does not bypass any group or class of man. God saves male and female, young men, older men, young, young women, older women, slaves and masters. Unlike God, man's love, God's love does not bypass the old because they're old or the poor because they're poor. Doesn't bypass a woman because they're a woman. God's grace is for all men. It's a wonderful gospel. He does not bypass anyone on account of colour, caste, class or even creed. Obviously you've got to change your creed but he doesn't the gospel's for all. The gospel, the external call of the gospel is for the whole world. And hence, in the context of Titus, he is saying no one can use their particular group or station in life as an excuse for not living a right Christian life because the gospel is for all men of every class and every group his second argument uh, is found in verse 12 he says this grace of God teaches us how to live verse 12 teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world you see the grace of God doesn't just save the grace of God also trains it saves and it trains God in his grace trains those whom he has saved the verb used in the Greek is from the same stem as in the noun pedagogue Grace instructs, teaches and leads. Grace knows when to chasten and it knows when to comfort. A good pedagogue knows when to reward and a good pedagogue knows when to restrain. And this is the result of the gospel. And Paul puts this, as he so often does, um, 
in negative terms first and then in positive terms. Negatively, the result of being saved by God's grace is that the believer denies or rejects ungodliness and worldly lusts, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, verse 12. The first result of the gospel, the first thing grace trains us, teaches us, is that we must turn away from ungodliness and worldly lusts. Because ungodliness and worldly lusts are described for us clearly in Romans chapter 1. And the ingredients of ungodliness are really idolatry and immorality. And Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But when true Christianity, true grace comes into a man's life, I use man in the generic sense, into a man's life, that man has to utterly turn away, utterly reject the ungodliness he used to live in. You see, there's the gospel, but there are the results of the gospel. And this is an active decision we have to make when we become a Christian. A determination to renounce worldly passions and strong sinful desires. We can't do it on our own, of course, but there has to come from us too. We have to repent. We have to say, I am now a Christian. I am now not going to do the things I used to do, which were sinful. Titus, in verse chapter 3, verse 3, reminds Titus of the... Um, what we might call the pre-Christian state. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. To become a Christian involves turning your back on all of those things. Turning our back on inordinate desires for pleasure, power or possessions. You see, there's no point saying we're a Christian if there are no results. There's no point saying, well, I, I believe the gospel and, and it has no effect. Paul says that the grace trains us to leave all those things in our old life, but we're now in the new life. That's him putting it negatively. But he also puts the results of the change that comes into a man's life through grace in positive terms. It's not just about stopping doing certain things. Positively, this good teacher of grace trains us to live, it says in, in this verse, soberly, righteously, and godly. Not just on Sundays, but in this present world. That's what grace trains us to do. In context, you Cretan believers, whatever group you belong to, can live a sanctified Christian life in your homes, in your church, and in the public sphere, because God in his grace doesn't just save you, he teaches you and trains you 
to live the kind of life which will adorn the doctrine of God. What undermines the gospel more than anything um, are Christians who do not live soberly. That is to say, without self-control over body, mind and tongue particularly. What about those Christians who do not live righteously? They lack integrity in business and they have a bad reputation in business, for example. Or those who do not live godly, a lack of true piety, zeal and love for God, who is to be our sole focus of worship. All those things do not adorn the doctrine of God. They, they, dam it, they damage it. They, they, it reduces the credibility of it. Because people say, well, this is what you say is true, but this is how you live. You see, a tr the true gospel brings results in a man's life, in the life of a church. It brings a radical change in a person's life. And when that's not clear and evident in us or among us, here and out there, then it undermines the gospel of grace and the doctrine of God. His third argument as to why and how these Cretans should live a holy life is found in verse 13. This grace of God teaches us how to look for the second coming of Christ. Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. One of the things that, one of the results of the gospel in a, in a new convert is that salvation lights up within us, within you, a kind of um, waiting attitude about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a kind of blessed expectation that is created within us, a looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. Of course our hope is, is laid up for us in, in heaven. And then there's going to be this glorious appearing. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the, we will have the full realisation of that hope. That, that hope is reserved in heaven for us now. Moth can't get to it. Rust can't corrode it. The thieves can't steal it. It's safe. But at the second coming will fully appropriate our hope. Paul in Galatians 5 verse 5 states that we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness. Christians have to learn this waiting, this looking for this watching. I wonder if it's in your heart this morning. It's a blessed hope because of the glory it will bring to the Lord Jesus, our great God and Saviour. Just think, in a world where the Lord Jesus every day is despised, where his, his name is a common swear word, 
he will be publicly glorified. The righteous within all the nations will be glad and they will cheer on his righteous judgments and his vengeance upon the wicked. Things will be set right and they'll be set right forever. And Christ will reign over everything and everyone. And won't it be wonderful to see our Lord win battle after battle after battle and be victorious. To see every knee bowing at last and every tongue confessing at last that Jesus Christ really is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. To see every mocker put to shame and every tongue silenced at last. We're going to rejoice in his victories on that day, dear friends. It's a blessed hope. We're going to see the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I speak briefly to to say if you don't know the saviour as your saviour then this is not something this is not a blessed hope for you this is a day of dread and judgment you need to be ready for that day and the only way to be ready for that day is to be is to accept this grace of God in Christ that brings salvation to all men don't care what colour you are what class you are what gender you are. The gospel is for all men. For the Christian it's a blessed hope because it will be the end of the believer's pain and sorrow. All our tears will be wiped away. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain for the former things will have passed away. There'll be no more death or suffering. Perhaps the greatest thing, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more failure. We, we, we hate ourselves, don't we when, we, when we let God down, even just by a bad thought, because we want to be pure. But then we will be free of sin. Sin will be no more. For when we see him, we shall be like him. Scripture says, I don't know if I fully know what that means but I know it means that sin will be at an end the grace of God which brings salvation trains us to look and to wait for that blessed day and that enables us to live soberly and righteously are you awake are you awake this morning to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning the second time do you have that spirit of watching and waiting and looking and hoping and wanting and getting excited about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus said watch ye therefore for ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning lest 
suddenly he come and find you sleeping. We want to be ready for him, don't we? Paul's final argument as to why there is no excuse for these Cretans not to live a holy Christian life is found in verse 14 and it is that the grace of God has purified us from sin. It says in that verse who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now remember the context of this epistle. He's trying, he's saying to Titus, these, these unruly, these disobedient Christians, you need to get in amongst them and, and bring order to the churches, but you also need to tell everybody, women and men and young and old, even though they're Cre- even though they're Cretans, you've got to live this holy Christian life. Even down to the ordinary level of living in our families and in our workplaces. The grace of God has appeared and saved. And once saved, the grace of God trains us in holiness and teaches us to look for the blessed appearing of Christ. But his final point is that for us Christians to live this way, Christ gave himself. That's the true foundation of sanctification, is the cross. In order for you and I and for these Cretans to live to God in sanctification, Christ came and gave himself for that. It wasn't just to forgive us our sins, it was to change us, to transform us, to make us holy. And in the gospel... And in the results of the gospel, we must never forget that, the, that Christ gave nothing less than himself. Not in a general, vague way. He gave himself, this, this verse says, for us. Not some kind of bland, oh, he, died. he died for the world, and there's a sense in which that's true. But he died for us. He died for the church for his people. He gave himself for us. Christ is the Father's gift to us. And in his life and in his death, the Lord Jesus fulfilled the demands of the broken law. And he took the curse of the broken law upon himself. He took the punishment of sin that we deserved and he took it upon himself. And he merited us, he merited for us the righteousness that we have with God through faith. And he merited the gift and the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the gift given to the church and for us as individual believers, without which it would be impossible to live this Christian life. But he gave himself for us and again Paul uses his tried and trusted method of 
putting things negatively and then positively. As to the reason why Christ gave himself. Why did Christ give himself? Well, negatively speaking, Christ gave himself. This verse says that he might redeem us from all iniquity. That he might redeem us from all iniquity. To be saved means that you have to be ransomed from an evil power. And the ransom price, the scripture teaches us, is the blood of Christ. The evil power is iniquity. That power of sin that reigns over man by nature. But we've been, the Christian is ransomed, redeemed, rescued, delivered from that great power. At a great cost. At a great price. Peter said, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver or gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We are delivered, ransomed from iniquity by the blood of Christ. This power from which we were delivered is all iniquity, which is anomious, lawlessness. Do you know the last word millions and millions, perhaps billions of people will ever hear from God? The last words they will ever hear before their final eternal doom is sealed are these. Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, ye that work lawlessness. You see, salvation includes being rescued from this settled, indwelling disobedience to God and to his holy law. That's us by nature. Through the gospel, we're delivered from that. We're rescued, ransomed at the cost of the blood of Christ. For this to happen, Christ had to give himself. Didn't send an angel, didn't even send a book, didn't send a religion. Sent him, he, gave, he was sent by the Father and he willingly came and gave himself. Fulfilled the law in his life. His cross was an atonement for sin. Paul puts this positively too. Christ not only came to deliver us from a great power. Christ gave himself, it says here in this verse, also to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. It's a wonderful thing that by Christ's cleansing blood and through the work, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, all true Christians are purified. We're washed from our sins. And we are made to be God's very own people, a peculiar people. 
We are made to be God's people. Like Israel in the Old Covenant, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Dear friend, if you're not a Christian today, then you're not part, you're not part of God's people, you're not part of God's nation. But the, the gospel call is to you to, be, to become part of God's family through the gospel. To be delivered from the, the iniquity, the lawlessness that's in your heart and to be delivered from the wrath of God that's over your head because of the curse of a broken law. But we who are Christians have been made into the people of God. And one of the characteristics, sorry, I can't speak, characteristics of this special purified people of God is that they are zealous of good works. Dear friends, if there's no zeal, Christian zeal in your life, if there's no evidence of good works, we're a bit scared of that term, aren't we, in certain Protestant circles. But we are saved not by good works, but we're saved to good works, unto good works, that we are meant to do good works. It's no good saying, well, I believe in justification by faith and I'm, I'm a Christian and I, or even I'm spirit-filled if there's no evidence of it. If you're not doing good works, if you're not doing works of obedience to God. You see, God has sent his Son, the Son came, to purify unto himself a peculiar people. And what is the characteristic of this people? They are zealous of good works. Is that you and I this morning? I'm not going to define what good works are going to be different for, for, for different people. But what I do know, even just from the context here, is that it includes the ordinary and the mundane, the family circle, looking after people in our own families. It's not all necessarily about preaching or doing amazing things. It's the ordinary. It's the, what you might call the boring. We have to be faithful there. And God sees it as a good work. Dear friends, these are the arguments Titus is to put before these island churches. This is what he must train these elders to preach and to model. The gospel has come, grace has appeared, and where it is received there will be a radical change in the most ordinary parts of life in every sphere and every station of life Was that, is that true of you and I this morning do we even know this gospel have we had this salvation which grace the grace of God brings it's for you today it's freely offered. Christ has come. For, th for those of us who know him, let us not be like 
these Cretans, well, we, I'm sure they improved under the ministry of Titus. But we need to be, there needs to be a marrying up of the doctrine of God with our sanctified living. That will be the greatest tract, the greatest sermon, the greatest witness to this world. The authenticity of our Christian lives. May God bless his word to us this morning. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.